It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert. And I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure. Because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the editor of the magazine. With me today is author, presenter and naturalist Mike Dilger to talk about his new book, Nightingales in November. So, Mike, we're in spring. Nightingales sing in spring. Why Nightingales in November? Well, Nightingales in November, the main title is designed people to uh, think, really, Fergus, can Nightingales, November, they aren't here in November. Um, the, 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 the other title of the book, which is probably a little bit more kind of explanatory of what the book's about, is A Year in the Lives of Twelve British Birds. And I think a lot of people think about Nightingales, April, May, here they are, they're singing, they're doing their thing. And by the end of June, they've gone completely quiet, uh, and then obviously they've got about the business of mating. And then probably by August, they're away. And it's only recently we've found out where nightingales are doing and what they're doing throughout the rest of the year. So I've picked 12 very different yet iconic British birds and trying to talk about what they're doing throughout the year. For example, everyone knows about the cuckoos. You know, the cuckoos, they'll, they'll be here in, I would think, probably about a couple of weeks. Yeah. Hopefully, kind of the end, well, kind of middle end of April uh, with our iconic call. Uh, but the most amazing thing is all this work done with the BTO and satellite tracking cuckoos they've actually found out Chris the famous cuckoo named after Chris Packham was that is actually generally only here for about six weeks of the year that's, that's extraordinary we, we consider them our birds like swallows as it's well, considered a actually, British bird the cuckoo is a British bird but actually really it's an African we're bird we're borrowing African birds for a, a few brief months it's spending effectively six months of the year in sub-Saharan Africa and then spending six weeks in, in Britain uh, and then spending the rest of the time the kind of the six months plus the six weeks kind of either 
either kind of moving to Africa or moving to Britain in this amazing circuitous route. So I'm trying to really kind of map what all these birds are doing throughout the year. And there are certain birds, for example, I've got a number of resident birds like robin, and, you know, we see robins for most of the year. Um, but it's trying to kind of unveil a bit of their secret lives as to what they're doing when they're not immediately obvious. And it's been a real tra- challenge. It's effectively taking 12 different birds, and we talk about these things called monographs, which is uh, Derek Ratcliffe's peregrine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A single species, single species in one great volume. Yeah. Precisely, you know, the, yeah. the tome, or Eileen Reese's Buick Swan. And I hopefully, kind of, hope, hopefully interweaving kind of 12 beautiful stories of 12 very different life histories of very well-known birds seamlessly together. Well, I really like, I've, I've read quite a lot of this, and I really like the way it's, it's, it brings that, the homely birds such as blue tits and robins, and then you have your puffins and Buick swans, and a whole host of others that sort of come and go. It's really a nice pace to a book to have that blend of stories coming together each month, Thank even you. though some of them are you know, miles away in southern Africa. Uh, obviously, you're a highly, you're a well-travelled man with all your work. Um, some of the legwork's been done by... Um, Satellite tracking, is that right? The satellite tracking is the most amazing kind of technical revelation. Um, certainly kind of satellite tracking of cuckoos, which the, with the BTO, the British Trust Ornithology here, have kind of pioneered recently. And it is just revealed the most amazing amount so of information. Is it like a little satchel you put on their backs or something? Or what, yeah, uh, it's effectively what? It's a GPS uh, locator that's set, there's a, a transmitter that basically kind of bounces signals to, to satellites and then the, the, the BTO can kind of receive that data, I think every 12 or every 24 hours. And it's got a battery, so it recharges with a, so, a solar charger so the battery can get recharged. Um, and the, the famous Cuckoo Chris, for example, has been followed for four years. And unfortunately, last summer it disappeared somewhere in the Sahara right did the thing stop or was the bit you just assumed the bird had nobody perished, quite knows in the desert. because of course the kind of crossing the Sahara which each cuckoo will do um, twice a year yeah. they'll do it obviously in the spring and they're probably just about to cross the Sahara now and obviously at some point in the autumn they'll cross uh, back down south and they've been we, we knew that they kind of wintered somewhere south of Sahara, but now we found out they're wintering in these places called the Western Congolian Swamp Forests. And oh. there's, a, there's a whole kind of bundle of <laughs> yeah. forests. There's a kind of like Central African Republic, and then there's the, the Republic of Congo, then there's the big one, Old Zaire, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's somewhere very close to the huge Zaire-Congo River, which sits in between the Republic of Congo and the Democratic Republic of Congo and there's amazing swamp forests wow. where so, elephants are, where gorillas are and also where the pygmy, the, the Congo pygmies are as well. So it's chosen one of the remote, weird, unbelievable places that hardly anybody knows. They're virtually impenetrable, that, these places. That's an extraordinary story. So they could, I mean, I, have cook, I live in the Brecon Beacons so we have cookies up on the hills. But they're quite tame hills, lots of sheep in the, in the bracken and the heather. So they go from that to seeing a few walkers in anoraks to seeing um, uh, elephants... And gorillas. Uh, gorillas, all sorts of things in the deepest impenetrable jungles left in Africa, really. And, and yeah. even though we know that, we still know very little about what they're doing and what they're in the eating. African Congo. Yeah. We suspect, for example, they're well known to kind of eat things like unpalatable caterpillars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they make a living out of kind of finding those woolly bears that mm. everything else avoids. So we can only assume they're spending their time in the canopy, eating caterpillars, eating catydids, all manners of kind of moths and butterflies. But we don't really know. They don't sing, certainly in Africa. They only really have that iconic cuckoo, 
the, the whole time they're here. Yeah, when they're, when they're and here. the really interesting thing as well, Fergus, is that they've found from this amazing journey of the cuckoo is that some of them will travel down to Africa by Italy and some will go via the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain. So Chris, for example, was going down via Italy and stopping in the River Po Delta in northern Italy, feeding up, getting himself nice and fat, before he then basically took on the Mediterranean, over the Atlas Mountains, all the way across Sahara, and then dropping into southern Chad, around Lake Chad, where he'd go... <laughs> basically have a metaphorical cigarette, yeah. kind of feed up, and then he'd slowly work his way down to Congo. But the most amazing thing is, once they're in the Congo, Chris and a few other cuckoos were then spending most of the time in these forests and then going down uh, even further south and then spending some time in the kind of arid area around Angola. Then he'd go back to the Congo, and then actually he'd not go back via Chad, but he'd go round what we call the armpit of Africa into kind of Sierra Leone, Ghana, spend some time there before he smashes, and it really is a smash, right back over the Sahara, the Atlas Mountains, over the Mediterranean, before they land in Italy in or the, Spain. In the space of, what, a week or so, or even less? Even less than that. Right. They reckon that, that some of the cuckoos go from Italy over to southern Chad, and we're talking 48 hours. Wow, wow. So they're basically Ta going tailwinds, quite high. Tailwinds or... Just, uh, they may well try and catch tailwinds, but it, it's kind of guesswork, really. Uh, and that's just one bird, the cuckoo, that yeah. suddenly, you know, we've been ringing cuckoos for, for, for well, for kind of probably 100 years, but only now, through this technology, finding out what they're doing and where they're spending their time. So there's lots of surprises in this book, but what was the biggest surprise for you personally? Because you're, you're an ex You've been birding for years and years, and you're a wildlife expert, but what was the biggest thing that made you sort of sit up and go, blimey? Well, common birds, how little we know about common birds. You know, the most, have a guess, Fergus, the most ringed bird in Britain. What do you think the most ringed bird is? Oh, it's probably a swan, is it? Or rather, uh, than a, rather than a Surprisingly, robin. because they go into boxes, it's a blue tit. Oh, right, okay. So blue tits, so they, they reckon they ring close oh, to a million yeah, yeah. blue tits. Yeah. Have, have been wrong in Britain. But we know so little about this bird. We know what's happening now. They're singing in the trees. That lovely little kind of song, the territorial male. We know when they're going in and out of boxes. We know when they, they have one brood a year. They all burst out of a box one morning, 12, 14 chicks. We know probably only one of those chicks a year will survive yeah, to they, breed. They feed the local cats and the sparrowhawks. Yeah. They feed the little <laughs> cats and sparrowhawks. They're cannon. Most of them are cannon fodder. Yeah, but actually, you know, after, after they disperse into the um, canopy and the, the parents will stay with them for about a week, what happens to them? They just kind of melt away. And we know in winter they form these mixed flocks with kind of grape tits and tree creepers, possibly nuthatches, uh, long-tailed tits, no, marsh They're raised bird feeders. Quite yeah, regular. and they kind of come yeah. in. But the most amazing facts found out by kind of Mike Toms, who works at the, works at the BTO, he reckons in the, in the course of a winter, you'll probably find a thousand different blue tits coming into your garden. So they kind of all join these little, these little yeah, groups. that's incredible. So yeah. it's actually kind of finding out quite a lot about these these common birds you know not until I've read all the research work and chatted to all the experts I, I finally kind of started to kind of understand a little bit more about blue tits and it's peregrines you know at the moment peregrines are kind of screeching across the skies in Bath they've just laid their fourth egg the clutch that are breeding on St John's Church but, you know, what they do in July, August, September, who knows? They just kind of disperse. The young kind of spread around, do a tour of the West Country. Some of them go abroad, some of them come back. And it was for me, the challenge was trying to find out what these birds are doing when they aren't so evident, when they aren't so visible. Yeah, well, that's interesting because they only really sing for a, f a relatively few months, this sort of dawn chorus, and that's something I 
desperately urge people to get out to, to listen to now before it's gone by mid-June, mid-July, that sort of time. I'd, I'd like to ask you, you know, moving on from the book, but where would you go this spring? Where is your favourite place to go this spring to listen to a dawn chorus or to hear, or just to go and see spring birds? Uh, in Britain, obviously. I have to say, at, at the moment, the dawn chorus is quite sensational. We're kind of slightly twixt cup and lip. The first migrants are coming back. I live just south of Bristol near Chew Valley Lake, and I was out there seeing San Martins, one of the first migrants back, and swallows were back, and I also saw one house martin. The Chiff Chaff's already singing. That yes, that's pretty recognisable. Slightly different metre to the great tier, which is teacher, teacher, teacher. Yes. I would say the best place to hear my own dawn, uh, my dawn chorus is my own back garden, because... Because, you know, the reason for moving out of Bristol was that I live, you know, nine miles south of Bristol, but in the middle of nowhere. I can open the curtains in the morning. I heard missile thrush singing, song thrush, blackbird. Uh, the, the blue tits are going bonkers. And also the first chiff chaffs are back. The black cap hopefully will be back soon. So my own back garden. But I'd advise you to go out anywhere, kind of any local woodland, even in a suburban area, you'd be amazed. And because the, the, the key time to go out and hear the dawn chorus is maybe kind of 5, 5.30. And that's before kind of cities largely wake up. So you get this period and where, where they're all going for it. And there's this lovely stratification where birds come in, like the robin will sing first, and then you'll get things like uh, you get the black cupping and then the, the blue tick coming in, and then you get the kind of maybe house sparrow chirping away. And then the kind of finches are really late. The green finch is always late out of bed. Yeah. And the chaffinch. <laughs> and that's always one of the latest so you get this real stratification as to when they come into the dawn chorus and that's the great way to kind of go and learn bird song is just go out there with your binoculars and just immerse yourself in it hear a song look at the bird and hopefully put two and two together and then you'll kind of learn it yeah that's how I did it years ago and it's one of the great treats to be able to go into a woodland and not have to stare through the canopy you can actually like you Fergus I learned learned the birds on my own no one went out and told me that's a wren singing that's a robin that's a song thrush I kind of learnt them slowly but I learnt them well because I kind of heard the song and thought I recognise that song but I can't see the bird and then hopefully you know you get you get both together and then you kind of imprint you get 20 or 30 and then after that it's oh I don't know that one and you begin it's to even find less it, than yeah, that yeah. you know once you know robin and you wren and dunnock and song thrush and blackbird you know five You've once you know those five you can pick up the more unusual ones yeah that's a brilliant tip actually and uh, yeah Again, uh, one thing to, to to really try this spring: learn learn your bird song. I can't um, recommend to people enough about the kind of joy of getting outside. It's yeah. good for mind, it's good for body, it's good for soul. It's I'm very unmusical, but just uh, somehow the, the 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 songs just kind of burn in my brain. And I know I know every British bird song by song. Yeah, what a skill, what a skill. And um, are you? Uh, is there particular birds you'd like to track down this year, or are you sort of beyond the the sort of dashing to far places to is will, there a particular species you yeah, yeah there's the twit the T word the twitch yeah, yeah. I will twitch stuff that's very local to where I am so for example last last autumn the Hudsonian Godwit was down at the Somerset levels and I couldn't resist yeah. <laughs> it's the first bird my three year old son ever saw through his tele, through the telescope Excellent. I lined it up on the bird he put his eye up he no he was like bird daddy bird it's like that's a very very rare bird yeah there, so. blown over here by a storm presumably <laughs> or, yeah, yeah it must have been blown over from kind of east uh, western United States um, yeah 
Yeah, but, but you know, I'm I'm very lucky the fact that I I get to kind of bird watch in my day job and I had a fantastic day's filming last week. We were filming Great Grey Shrikes, which as we all know, maybe 40 or 50 of them over winter here, comes down from Norway, Sweden, Scandinavia. And it was a fantastic day in the Forest of Dean. We were filming this bird sitting high on a tree. It was a beautiful sunny day and it would fly 50, 60 metres directly down, catch a lizard, a common lizard, yeah. having just emerged from hibernation. <laughs> That's bad luck, yeah. And then, and then naked. It was <laughs> yeah. just, it was just the most wonderful day. What were you filming for? This is a new series. That's for the one show. One show. Filming yeah, okay. for one show. So it's a, a little kind of four minute item on on the Great Grish Reich. And then nice next week, hopefully, I'm going up to to kind of film Caporchiali. And that really is an amazing kind of sound. Hearing that. Yes. Have you heard? No, Capor? never seen. Never heard. Um, that's one for the for the next big Scotland trip, which you've definitely one. got to do. And it's you know because of course like the black grouse, it's it's a lacking species, and it's got this amazing call. It sounds like a kind of it sounds like the kind of um, almost kind of hooves, and then there's a kind of pop like that, and then there's this kind of pig squeal like it's had its throat cut. <laughs> it's the most amazing kind of yeah. kind of collection of kind of weird noises yeah. together. It might account for quite a few Scottish myths and legends, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Probably. <laughs> um, if we talk about your book, I obviously, I've got lots of books that have influenced me, but what about you? Do you have a favourite nature writing book or book of the countryside that has been, it could be non-fiction, but something that you fall back on or re- would recommend to listeners? I have got uh, an absolutely enormous book collection. <laughs> it, it, I mean, frankly, I'm a book addict. I just, I'm trying to limit myself, Fergus, to two books a week. <laughs> I've just about managed that this week. I've just bought Feral by George Monbiot, which I'm hoping to read over the next couple of weeks. And I want to read Mark Avery's Inglorious, all about the Gunner Grouse shooting. Yes, I've read Just that. to kind of, you know, just so I'm kind of more aware of, of kind of the pros and cons. And you know, Mark is a very kind of ardent and proactive conservationist. So they're the two books that I'm going to hopefully read in the next few weeks. Um, I would say the book that has kind of excited me and turned me on more than anything else is Richard Maybe's Flora Botanica. Because people kind of think of myself me as a birder, but actually I studied botany at university. And these days I'm a bit of an all-rounder. I like butterflies, I like dragonflies, but I'm a very, very keen botanist. And it was just a revelation when that book came out. It's about looking at plants in an entirely new way. And for a presenter like me, you know, it's um, you know, it, it's it's gold dust. It's, it's a gold mine because I can kind of pick out the most amazing nuggets. There's stuff on folklore, oh, that's kind wonderful. Of ancient yeah. names of these plants, kind of wonderful little anecdotes all about these things. So they talk about kind of primrose being the kind of prima rosa and kind of all the all the ancient names of these, of these plants. It's a fantastic book, and it's a really new way of talking about plants, which to a lot of people are kind of quite dry. But for me, they're the most important thing because it's the you know in my garden, I'm a really keen wildlife gardener, and the, it's all about plants because the plants will attract the insects, yeah. the insects will attract the mammals, the insects will attract the birds. But you've got to get the plants right, and so by learning your you kind of your your cultivated plants and your your wild British plants, you be, you will become a much better naturalist. Ah, fantastic. Okay, good more good. Floor botanica, which maybe yeah. it's just I, I'm very I love but... dip into books and it's yeah. the perfect dip into book good recommendation brilliant but listen your book is a hugely optimistic read and and will encourage more people to get out into the countryside so thanks very much for revealing its secrets to us Fergus absolute pleasure great to catch up with you and as ever it's the book is optimistic and it's all about making people appreciate what's on their own doorstep and that's what it's all about kind of having another look at the blue tits and having a look at the robins and glowing in wildlife. Let's get them out there. (laughs) Let's get them out there. That's the message. 
Mike's book, Nightingales in November, is published by Bloomsbury Books and is available from mid-May. And thank you very much for listening to this podcast from BBC Countryfile magazine. You can find more of our podcasts at countryfile.com.